Tonight we're in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. And we have seen really since chapter 14 the explanation that the beast is going to fall, that fallen is Babylon the Great, the imagery that it is going to be the end of the Roman Empire. And we now enter into chapter 19 where the fulfillment of that is taking place. It seems that everything up to this point has been prediction about it or a description about it. Uh, we noted that there was preparation for it. It was prophesied in 14, prepared for in 15, uh, illustrated in 16, and given great detail in 17 and 18. And now it's going to finally happen in 19. And so we're moving Moving along in the description of the fall of the Roman Empire, this great beast, and its time for its desolation. So we'll read through the whole of chapter 19 and notice the uh, couple of different movements that occur in this chapter as we see then the, the desolation of the beast. Revelation 19, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, 
the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on his horse, on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's pretty awesome. That's some good stuff right there. The two distinct images going on. The first half of the chapter is this great rejoicing and victory. And the second half just gets nearly gruesome in the imagery. And so we'll look at what is going on in this chapter. Let's start with the first half of chapter 19 where we see this great rejoicing in heaven uh, taking place. A sound like the great multitude. Perhaps and most likely in my mind relating to the great multitude that we read about back in chapter 7. And that great multitude, remember, was all the servants of God. These are the ones who had been sealed with the mark of God. They've been slain for the cause of Christ. Here they are and notice what they are saying is hallelujah. And that word hallelujah in our English is a transliteration of the Greek word, which the Greek word is a transliteration of the Hebrew word. And so nobody wants to just translate it. Everybody just keeps using the original word all the way along. Halal meaning praise and jaw being the shortened of the Lord. And so if you think about what that would mean is just praise the Lord or like our song books have, hallelujah, praise Jehovah. And that's the idea of what hallelujah is saying is praise Jehovah, praise the Lord. And so what we are seeing in the first five verses is this great calling of praise and they are shouting praise the Lord and the reasoning is given. He says there in verse 2, His judgments are true that God has now intervened and acted. His judgments are true and just. He has judged that great prostitute. Here is this wicked city of Rome and her empire as we're going to see. Now that judgment is coming and the end of verse 2, avenging on her the blood of the servants. We've noticed through uh, the second half of the book of Revelation a description how those who did not worship the beast or worship its image, who did not have the mark of the beast, they're going to be slain. They're going to be killed and they'll be persecuted. And so by now seeing these past few chapters that the great prostitute and the beast are going to be judged and we've read all the details of how the collapse is going to come. We now see this host of heaven this great multitude now rejoicing and saying, yes, God has kept His promise. God has kept His word. He is judged for this wickedness. He has judged that awful prostitute. He has brought justice to them. And so that is the the, the basic idea, speaking of justice for the slain saints. There they are saying, God has kept His word. He has brought forth the judgments and the justice that are needed. Which is a good reminder for us because... We live uh, in a time where I think it 
as in all times, that we often question. We look around and we even have a song that says, Why are we the ones that suffer while the wicked seem to prosper year after year? And we are challenged by those difficulties when the righteous seem to go through hard things while the wicked seem to be doing just fine. And consider the book of Revelation has presented the same scenario. What is happening to those who worship the beast? Absolutely nothing. Those who worship the beast are doing fine. They're selling in the marketplace, buying normal transactions and commerce. What are happening to those who worship the lamb and refuse to worship the beast? They're being killed. This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair, nor does it seem just. But here we are being told that it doesn't matter how much time passes, God will bring justice. And this is a critical point to teach those first century Christians who are being told in this book, you are going to die. You are going to be slain because of your love for Christ, because you refuse to worship the beast. You are going to suffer. And here we have chapter 19 coming in and saying, but look, you will be avenged. God will be just. He will bring His judgments. And that is a very important reminder for us because often our faith can be shaken because of the same circumstances. Here I am serving God, and yet things are so difficult. I'm suffering. I'm going through problems. Things are not going the way that I think they should. If God is with me, what is going on? And here is the reminder. Don't worry that we see the wicked prosper and do not be alarmed that the righteous suffer. In the end, God always sorts these things out. God will judge and justice will most certainly come. And a helpful reminder is that God's justice will be far more equitable and right than any justice that will be given on this earth in terms of those problems of the righteous and the wicked. God will certainly take care of that. And that's what's being told here. Like as we look in verse 3, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Here is this imagery of this eternal torment. Once again, that we saw earlier, uh, a couple of chapters ago in Revelation, being reminded, this is not simply describing the fall of a wicked nation, but the people who belong to that nation who are worshiping this beast and participating in this paganism and in this Caesar worship, they are also being judged individually. And so once more we see the cry of praising God that He has brought about this judgment and justice. Verses 4 and 5, we are reintroduced to some people that we haven't seen in quite a while. The 24 elders and the four living creatures. We saw them back in chapter 4. Remember what they're doing? They're always worshiping God or as they cast their crowns they're praising God over and over and over again and so now we have them chiming in as well and they say amen hallelujah they're also praising the Lord as this happens and then they also see the praise coming from the throne as well praising God for what he has done and so this great praise of God because of his justice and so that relates back to what we see also in the prophets like Isaiah 34 and verse 10 where Isaiah prophesied. 
Night and day it shall not be quenched. The smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forevermore. That This is the way God speaks when He speaks of the fall of a nation. This same kind of imagery is God is subjecting this nation. He is destroying it. He's making it desolate. And the people who are there, they are going to be judged. If you remember, that goes back to what chapter 16 was trying to show us. Remember, as the bowls of wrath were poured out, twice in that section we were told this very important phrase, and yet they did not repent of their works. And now we're seeing why that's so important. Is here is God now saying, you had your opportunity. You have the chance to turn away from that wickedness and to separate yourself from the idolatry and that worshiping of the beast. They chose not to do it, and so now right is God to bring this justice. And so the first five verses praise all throughout heaven, from the great multitude to the four living creatures to the 24 elders to even the throne, everybody rejoicing because God has brought the justice due. Now verses 6 through 10 continue that imagery, but it adds one more dimension in talking about this marriage that's going to take place. Notice again, The praise continues. Verse 6, the voice of the great multitude again. Notice the the sound description that's given there. Like the sound and the roar of many waters. And also like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. You know, that, that'll, when you get that thunder right overhead, uh, that could take you off your seat. <laughs> Especially down here in Florida. I've had our windows rattle strong after some major storms go through. Imagine that sound. That's the, the sound that's happening. The, the deafening noise of rushing, roaring, mighty waters and the booming of this mighty thunder pealing over and over again as the voices of these, this great multitude say, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Notice that is important to the picture. It is not that the Lord God Almighty is on vacation and we don't know what to do. Here is a reminder. God is still ruling. God is on the throne though Christians are being persecuted, though they are suffering for the cause of Christ. We are praising God. He is still on the throne. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linens, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Here's a great picture of now the people of God can be joined in a relationship with Christ. And the reasoning, notice, is is what that tail end is at the end of verse 8. It is a picture that the Christians have gone through the suffering. They have remained true and faithful to God in the face of all of these tribulations. Because of that, they are granted the ultimate reward, the ultimate blessing. It is granted to them that they can participate in this wedding feast, this marriage that is going to occur with Christ. And this imagery is not unusual to the Scriptures in the slightest. Paul uses it when he writes it in its directions that we often discuss in terms of wives being subject to your husbands, husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church and then goes on and talks about this marriage relationship in terms of Christ 
and the church, the people of God in Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 27. Same imagery being used here. Here are the people of God and they are being united to the groom who is Christ. And we are the bride and therefore we can be in union with Him and in a relationship with Him. And think about the number of parables that Jesus told that used imagery of a messianic feast or of a wedding that would be attended or sometimes combined as a wedding feast. Same idea being used here is that here is Jesus using this to describe here's what it is to be in the kingdom of God. When the Messiah comes and the kingdom is established, there's going to be this union between His people and with Christ. And so that's what's pictured here is these who have suffered, they've been slain for the cause of Christ, but because of their faithfulness, they are shown to be in union with Christ and they are shown to be with the Lamb. That is imagery that we've observed throughout the book. We saw that back in chapter 14. The slain are there on Mount Zion with the Lamb. We saw it in chapter 7 in that great tribulation. There's the saints being given white robes and they are there with the Lamb as well. And so carrying along that similar imagery, imagery of encouragement, of comfort, of hope, you are with Christ. You are with Him. Do not give up on your hope or on your faith. Then notice how verse 9 words it. Write this, he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Very important statement here. Blessed are those who participate in this, who are invited in this. Well, the implication is there. How are you invited to the marriage feast? Well, they're the ones that have the clean robes. They're given the fine linens, the righteous deeds of the saints. It is calling for the endurance of the saints yet once more. Be faithful unto death. Continue to be strong in the Lord. And look at the invitation that you will receive in being joined with the Lamb. And that's how verse 9 ends. These are the true words of God. This is like God saying, I've promised it. I've guaranteed it. It will most certainly happen if you will remain with Christ. If you will not yield to the external temptations of the world and not blend into culture, but you will be righteous and pure and live your life for Him even into death. These are the true words of God that you will be married to Christ. You will be in a relationship with Him, joined eternally with Him, with all the blessings and privileges that come from such a relationship. And that's why you see verse 10, what happens in John's reaction to this amazing information is that he falls down at the feet of this angel in worship. Now, I think we read that and go, John, what are you doing? You know, I mean, come on now, John. We know not to worship angels, right? Don't don't be doing that. But I think it's because what is stated here is, is lost on us. John is so overwhelmed by the message and overcome by what is told to him that he falls down at just how awesome this message is. Be faithful and look at what you're going to receive. It doesn't matter what happens to you in this life. It doesn't matter if you are persecuted, if you are mocked, if you are killed. This is the great hope that is given to you. And John just seems to be overwhelmed by this message and just cannot believe what a great promise that that is given to the people of God. And so John says, it tells us about John, he falls down and worships him. The angel says, 
You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This great message is about worshiping God. And I think that is why this is here. I don't know if you've asked your question, you read that. Why is that recorded? You know, poor John, why do you get that stuff right here in the middle of all this? And John's been doing such a great job writing all these visions. And all of a sudden, we get kind of a little kicker to John. Like, oh, poor John, he, he uh, messed up a little bit right here as the angel says, no, no, don't do that. Worship God. But I want you to see that fits really the story of what Revelation has been about. Remember that we have been told, don't worship the beast. Don't worship the image. Don't worship these false things. That's a false prophet who looks like the lamb, but it speaks like the dragon. It's not true worship to God, even though this paganism and Caesar worship is propelling itself and promoting itself that way. And I think the message here is you don't even worship angels. Get the idea. You only worship God. And I think that's why that would be put here. Here's even John falling down to what is good and right and, and worshiping this great, glorious gospel message. And here the angel says, whoa, you worship God and you worship God alone. You don't worship angels. You don't worship anything. And to me, that fits what the scheme of Revelation has been about and warning the people, don't go into false religions. Do not worship anything that does not put God at the center. Worship Him. He's the only one worthy of that. And that's how verse 10 ends. A little bit of a perhaps challenging way it's written. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The point is, This great message, and any prophetic message, comes from Christ. He's the word of life. This message comes from Him. And so, worship God. Don't worship the angel. The angel's not to be worshipped. This isn't His message. This is Christ's message. This is Christ's good news to the world. The angel's just simply communicating it. He's just the messenger. Christ is the one who's generated this good news. Worship Him. And I think that's the idea is that He is the source of this great revelation. So the first half of the chapter, these first ten verses, is just kind of visualize it, just everybody breaking out into praise. Everybody's breaking out into song and rejoicing. Yes, the Lord has just, He is bringing judgment against the beast. He has brought down that great prostitute. Vengeance is being given to the people of God and the The people of God are being given the union with the Lamb. They are joined with Christ. Praise the Lord because that is what they have received. And now the second half of the book gives us such an interesting image. In the midst of all of that, we see the statement there that heaven opens and in comes this white horse. And on that white horse there is a rider And all of the descriptions that were given about the rider here are are fascinating because it's intended that we will see that this is Christ and there's no other possibility. We notice, of course, he's riding on this white horse. We've, We've mentioned that throughout our study that the white is not a representation of purity, but a representation of victory. We saw that back in chapter 6, the first horse of the apocalypse, as those are often called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That first one was a white horse. It was resembling victory as it would go into war. We saw that in chapter 7 as well. Remember that the great multitude are clothed with white robes. It wasn't saying that, oh, well, they're just pure people. It was showing their victory 
over the lamb because or over the beast because of their faithfulness and over the tribulation that had come. And the same thing here. Here is this one riding in on the white horse. This is a mock-up in a sense of what a Roman general would do after winning is come in on the white horse, all clad, armies coming behind, a symbol of victory and might because he has conquered the enemies. And you'll notice the language just kind of flows through with that. Now, verse 11, he's called faithful and true. We saw that back in chapter 3 and verse 14 as he wrote to the seven, Jesus writes to the seven churches of Asia. He calls himself the faithful and true witness. Same language here. Notice the description. Eyes as flames of fire. We saw that twice earlier in the book. Chapter 1, verse 14, we saw the one like the Son of Man, his eyes like flames of fire. And then also writing to the seven churches of Asia. Same language again. These eyes of flames of fire. Now, verse 12 has something a little bit curious to me. Notice that it says that he has many diadems on his head. Now, the only time that we have read about diadems in this book has been the diadems that are on the dragon and the diadems that are on the beast. If you remember, who's wearing the crowns? Christ and the faithful. They have the crowns. The beast has the diadems. And so it's quite strange, in my opinion, to come along here and see Christ. And I would say we'd expect Him to be full of crowns. Yet He's full of diadems. And that is strange. And my answer to that is that this is describing the victory over the beast. He's taken those crowns. Remember, he's got many diadems on his head. All those seven heads and all the awful imagery that we see. This is picturing Christ has taken those. And he is showing that he is victorious as just what would be done in ancient times. And so I think that is the picture of verse 12 is to show the victory that he has achieved over the dragon and over the beast. He is wearing the diadems that they were previously wearing themselves. He's showing his victory over them. You notice he's also making war. Great picture here. He's making war in righteousness. And that's why I want you to see this is imagery of of coming in for... Uh, as a triumphal procession from a victory. He has conquered the enemies. In fact, I think that's what verse 13 intends there when it says that his robe is dipped in blood. There's a lot of discussion. Well, maybe since it's Christ, maybe it's talking about his own blood. And some say, well, maybe it's something else. This is a picture that Christ has so utterly destroyed the enemies and is so victorious that His clothing is stained in blood. He has so utterly wiped out those who have stood against Him that He is now pictured as blood just streamed all over Him. And that comes from Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63 does the same thing in talking about God's great victory. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in His apparel, marching in greatness of His strength. I want you to see the same military language. Here, who is this one that's coming in, who's riding in, and his, his garments are crimson, their garments are red, and he's marching in with this great strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Notice the question. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads the winepress? Essentially, it looks like you've been tromping grapes. You're so colored in red. Why are your garments red? Here's his answer. I have trodden the winepress alone 
And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Catch it. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and and my year of the redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk on my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And that prophetic imagery is what Revelation is relating off of. As here is Christ riding on the horse and saying... Here is the salvation of God riding it in victory. Why is your garment dipped in blood? Well, because you have trampled the peoples. You have put them in the wine press. Remember chapters 14 and 15 talking about that same imagery of being put into the wine press. Here is Christ saying, I did it. I put them in the wine press. I've trampled them out. It is the end of that great prostitute. Her judgment has come. She has been destroyed by Christ. And that's what we're calling this section the victorious Christ. You have in verse 16, some more, in verses 15 and 16, some more imagery uh, concerning his sharp sword coming out of his mouth to strike the nations. Verse 15 clearly identifies this as Christ, tying us to Psalm chapter 2, where we see ruling with a rod of iron. That is the picture that was given to the Messiah. That's the same imagery that we saw about what Christ was going to do as He comes in victory. And then notice verse 14. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on the white horse horses. This is important to see because chapter 19 is setting up something. So here is Christ. He's coming from victory. He's got blood all over him. He has won the war. He is riding in great victory. And behind him are all of his armies. So just imagine a throng of heaven's armies riding in on white horses. And so here they are as they come, come in. And so the rest of the imagery is trying to describe, look how victorious he is. Look at what he is. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He comes in in victory. He treads the winepress. He destroys them with the sword of his mouth. Trying to bring all of that imagery together. Now watch what happens in verse 17 because this is where it gets really grotesque but it's actually where it gets really cool. Watch verse 17 now. I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly overhead. Okay, here's, he's going to start talking to all the birds. Okay, strange kind of statement. And he tells the birds, hey, it's time to come for the great supper. It's feeding time is what he says to all these birds. Well, what's going to happen? Well, verse 18, he's going to eat, they're going to eat the flesh of kings and flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Hmm. And you read that and go, well, that just sounds really disgusting. I mean, what is this God doing right here? Just absolutely gross out party. Hope you didn't eat your dinner because here the birds are just going to gorge themselves on the rotting flesh of all the kings of the earth and all the armies and the horses. And it just sounds absolutely foul. 
not the first time this was in the Bible either, though. This is also found in the Old Testament. No surprise by now that we've been through these 19 chapters that guess what? Nearly everything is back here in the Old Testament prophets. Check out what we see over in Ezekiel 39. Same kind of imagery. Ezekiel 39 verse 4, and then we'll jump to verse 17. Verse 4 says, You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and your all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you the, to birds of prey every sort and uh, of every sort unto the beasts of the field to be devoured. Now verse 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather them from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of he goats and of bulls, all of them all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat until you are filled and you'll drink blood until you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. So Ezekiel did the same thing. Hey birds, guess what? It's going to be dinner time and you're going to eat your fill. You're going to drink the blood. You're going to eat their flesh. It's going to be great. And so Ezekiel does the same thing in driving home this grave destruction that was going to arrive upon Jerusalem against Israel. And so now here you have the same kind of imagery used. Now what's interesting is that this is setting up for a a great battle. And notice how it works out back in Revelation verse 19 now. So you have in verse 17 and 18 telling the birds, okay, get ready birds. There's going to be this really big meal for you in just a minute. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his armies. Okay, So here is Christ. He's on the white horse. He's clothed in blood because he's trampled out the great prostitute. And he's got with him all of his armies on horses behind him. At the same time, we now read in verse 19, here's the beast and the kings of the earth. So there's our beast and our false prophet. There they are now coming with all of their armies and they're gathering for battle as well. But envision what's going on as these armies are getting ready to go to battle against Christ. And as the beast and the kings of the earth, the false prophet, as they're getting all their armies together, you have these vultures circling overhead because they've been told, get ready, you're going to have a great feast on your hands. Now, as you know, that's never a good sign. You know, we often make a joke about that of, you know, not a good sign to see a bunch of vultures circling overhead. They're not going to make it much longer, right? They're getting, they're getting excited. And that's what is being portrayed here is the angel has spoken, remember what's told in verse 17, to the birds that are flying overhead. So you've got these birds flying overhead. Here comes the, these rogue armies. It's the beast. These wicked armies are coming in and they think that they're going to have a great meal on their hands, but by the birds circling overhead, we already are being shown that the result of this battle is certain. We already know how this is going to work out. This is not going to go well for the beast. This is not going to go well for the kings of the earth and for their armies. And so that is the picture is that this is setting up for the inevitable slaughter that is going to occur here with the beasts and the kings of the earth and these vultures then are symbolizing that idea as they are preparing to be able to have this great feast. Now, remember we saw this set up for us back in chapter 16. 
Back in chapter 16, we saw this imagery of Armageddon. Totally been misused and taken out of whack and put it back into its place. Remember, Armageddon was the location where the kings of earth were gathering for battle. This is the location of the kings of the earth. They're coming to battle and that's where they're going to gather. Remember what we learned about what Armageddon stood for. It is the place of decisive losses. Catastrophic defeats happen there. Okay? And that's what now we are going to see in this decisive loss. Look in verse 20. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who, was in, the pre- who, was, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. What a great image. There's no battle. It is great imagery. Here comes Christ and all of His armies, and here are the kings of the earth, and they've been gathering, preparing for this moment. And that's what chapter 16 was predicting. Here they're going to get ready to go to battle against God's forces. And so now Christ is ready. He's just destroyed Rome. He's taken out the great prostitute. It is now the beast's turn. And rather than there being this great Armageddon battle as typically the futurist wants to see, oh, God is going to have, Christ is going to come, and He's going to go battle against the Antichrist and all that stuff. Notice what verse 20 says. It's just this way up. You lose. Over. You gathered all your armies and God just goes, I win. Beast is captured, thrown to the lake of fire. Kings of the earth, lake of fire. False prophet, you lose. There's no battle. No battle is described here whatsoever. They're just tossed in the lake of fire. You lose. And that's the idea of what is being told. That's what Armageddon stands for. A decisive loss is about to happen. And oh, does it. The beast is crippled, destroyed, cast into the lake of fire. It's over and done. Kings of the earth into the lake of fire. These nations and kings and also the Roman Empire itself, all who submitted to that Caesar worship, all who submitted to paganism, all who stood against the Lamb, they are now judged. And they are cast into that lake of fire, as verse 20 says, that burns with sulfur. And I love verse 21. So the rest were slain by the sword that comes out of the mouth of him sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You lose. Game over. God, yet again, stands victorious. And so that's the picture that's being given here, is what chapter 19 is setting up, is... All of the enemies of God at this moment are now dispatched. We have seen the great prostitute destroyed at the beginning of chapter 19, and that's why they're singing praises to God. Praise the Lord. Great prostitute's been destroyed. And we come to the end of chapter 19. Guess what? It is the empire, the beast, and all the localities and provinces and the kings of the earth and everybody else. They're all being brought into judgment as well. It's time for them to go. And we will be shown in chapter 20, and we'll see a little bit later, this picture of the lake of fire that burns the sulfur. That is a picture of eternal punishment. That's going to be spelled out more clearly to us in chapter 20. But uh, for now being shown to us, this is their eternal punishment, their eternal judgment. Just two thoughts I want to leave you with from chapter 19. And the first, and all of these are encouraging messages, both of them. And the first is just a reminder the marriage to the Lamb has come. What a great blessing, what a great statement of praise is given here. And that's why John is so overcome as he bows down to worship. Is Look at the great possibility that stands before us to be able 
to be in a relationship with God, to be united to the Lamb. And what it's calling for then is to make ourselves ready to don those righteous and beautiful, faithful deeds that the saints ought to be wearing as clothing around them. Calling for them, you also can be joined in the victory of Christ and stand with the Lamb, that you can be with the Lord eternally if we will put ourselves in that very same position that we will make ourselves holy, that we will purify ourselves, and that we will become the people that God wants us to be. And so it's a call here of God saying, I've given you this great offer to be with me. Here's this great invitation. Won't you receive that invitation to come to Him, to be joined with Him, to turn away from the, the filth and the evil deeds of the world, purify our lives to be part of God's people. And then the second great message of encouragement is to see the victorious Christ. At the time of the writing of Revelation, none of that had happened yet. And that's what's important to keep in mind as you put your shoes in that first century audience. They're being told Christ is victorious. Christ has already won even though that battle, quote-unquote, a lopsided one, had not occurred yet. The beast was still active. The great prostitute was still there. The kings of the earth are all still going. And here is God saying, but you know the final outcome. And that is, I think, a really important message for us and a reminder for us is to understand that Christ is on the throne. No matter what we go through, no matter how difficult the things that we suffer, no matter what persecutions and rejections we might experience because we are Christians, we are being reminded that you and I already know the outcome. That's one of the funny things that I enjoy uh, when my kids like to watch football with me, is they'll look at the score and they'll see, now who's in the lead? And I'll tell them, all right, that one's winning, that one's losing. And they always like to pick the winner. Oh, I'm rooting for that one. I'm rooting for the team that's in the lead. Now, I'm not going to root for the loser. Who wants to be on the losing team? And who wants to root for the loser? And that's the message of this chapter. Don't You already know the outcome. You already know who's going to win. Why would you be found on the losing team? Be joined with the team that is victorious. Christ will win. Christ will subject all the nations. And that's the process that is continuing to happen as He has subjected nation after nation. And any who stand against Him, eventually they are judged. Every nation will be put under the feet of Christ until the final enemy is put under His feet and that is death. We know the outcome. Who wants to back a loser? Might as well join with Christ and be on the winning team. And we invite you to make that decision tonight. A decision to turn away from your sins. To see Christ as seated on the throne, reigning in great might and power as He rules over all peoples and nations. And as those nations continue to fall and continue to be judged, it is a reminder to us that God will be victorious in the end. In the end, all things will be placed under His feet. And we want to be servants of His when that time comes. We invite you to come to Jesus this very evening to turn away from your sins, to be immersed in water so that your sins are washed away, so that you can be a child of God and participate in the blessings and promises that we've read about tonight.
Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?